Well, do you have any questions you'd like to talk about this evening? It's a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, what are your observations about jhana practice? A good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> So, the question was about jhana practice. Any observations or comments? Uh, Basically, the development or strengthening of concentration is always a good idea. There are very few people, maybe there are some, but there are very few who have too much concentration. You know, so I think for most of us, especially living as lay people in the world, where there's so much distraction in our normal lives, uh, so to, to develop through periods of intensive practice a baseline of samadhi, you know, and to strengthen that and to keep that to keep that strong, then carries over to some extent into our life outside of retreat. So for myself, over all these years, I've done periods where I felt, oh, this would be a good time to just emphasize the concentration aspect. And so I would take periods of time to do that. And sometimes it was of a particular retreat. At a couple of times over all these years, I would decide, okay, for the next year, I'm going to just devote myself. Not, not all on retreat, but where I really emphasize that aspect. And it's always been useful. You know, and then it also feeds and supports the Vipassana practice. In terms of jhana, explicitly, as you may know, different teachers have some different interpretations of what jhana is. So rather than get into that, you know, just understanding that there are various interpretations of what that term refers to. But in all of them, it is the deepening of samadhi, of concentration. My sense, often people will come and ask, you know, well, should I practice this way? Should I practice that way? And it's, it's, it's interesting because it's all good. You know, it's not, it's not that there's a right answer and a wrong answer to that that over the course of our lifetime of practice, we need to do it all. You know, we need to develop the insight and the samadhi and the metta and the compassion. So all of it, over time, needs to be brought along. Uh, And we each do that in different ways. And so I would suggest when there's an interest, when we really feel inspired, oh, this, I'm feeling the urge, I'm feeling the interest to strengthen the samadhi now. So let me do perhaps some form of jhana practice. At other times, you know, we might have the interest, no, I really just want to practice more open awareness. And so it really depends on where each of you are in your practice. Each, each of you is in your practice. <laughs> and uh, knowing that it's all good, you know, that it's worth doing. Just, just one little addendum. Uh, when I first went to India, when I first started practicing, I had zero concentration. I would just sit and think for an hour and enjoy it. <laughs> the hour went quickly, and I was entertaining myself. But it was not really <laughs> very helpful in terms of the meditation. Um, and so when I went back the second time, uh, I realized that I really needed to emphasize the concentration more. And so the way I did it was through intensive metta practice. You know, we, we can develop it in a lot of different ways, whether it's on the breath or metta, or there are 40 traditional objects of concentration. Uh, but for me, the metta practice, so I, did, I think, think I did at that time six weeks or two months of intensive metta. And it really made all the difference. I mean, it was, it was the first time my mind had actually gotten a bit concentrated. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is why people like to meditate. 
because before that it had just been an ongoing struggle. You know, but once the mind settled a bit, it gets a lot more easeful and a lot more is available to us. Um, so I think at different times it's worth doing and finding the practice that really inspires you to do it. I think different teachers may explain it differently. So I have a very simple way of understanding it for myself. There may be much more elaborate uh, descriptions of it than what I'm about to say. But for me, interdependence is simply... the expression of the fact that all things are conditioned. That things, things don't exist independently. They arise because certain conditions are there which give rise to it appearing. So just by virtue of that, there is interdependence because nothing exists in and of itself independent of conditions. So for me, it's that simple, you know, to see that whatever's arising, whether it's our thoughts or sensations or the body or things in the world, it's that everything is arising because of particular conditions which give rise to that. Um, so it seems very, you know, one time and the Buddha was, I forget what the conversation was, you, one of you probably will remember Maybe it was about dependent origination. And Ananda was saying to the Buddha something. I don't remember exactly, but it was something like, oh, I understand this, and this is, you know, it's so important, or whatever, and I think I get it. (laughs) And basically, the Buddha said, I don't think so. (laughs) This is very deep and very profound. So <laughs> you can take my explanation in that context. <laughs> well, uh, but it seems to me a very straightforward way of understanding it, rather than s- some yeah, rather than as something outside the range of what we can really understand. Just as a footnote to this, and here's where I think it gets quite interesting, not, not only can we understand interdependence, meaning that everything is dependent upon conditions, about other conditions, but it's really a doorway into understanding selflessness because there's no, there's no self which is independent <laughs> of the arising of changing conditions. Um, And so the understanding of that, and this would be very interesting in your practice, just to to keep an eye out for when, whether sitting or walking through the day, when you have the strongest sense of I am. Where are those moments of selfing that come up? And it's very often in identification with a thought. You know, we were just lost in a train of thought, and there's really a sense of I'm the one thinking, and I'm the one in the story of it. Or it could be, the selfing could be when we're having reactions in the mind to what's arising, and so we can get identified with the aversion or the grasping. 
And so just to watch for those moments when that I sense feels very strong or apparent to you. And then to see that whatever it is that's arising in that moment is also a conditioned phenomena arising because of causes. It's not I, it's not self, it's impersonal. Given these causes, this arises. The conditions change, the experience changes. So we can learn from from the times that we are caught in the sense of I, if we're paying attention, right in that moment, we can practice freeing ourselves from that identification through understanding the conditioned nature of whatever's arising. Just in that regard, one of the things that... Uh, just back. I hope you're having fun meditating, at least some of the time. <laughs> because it's so interesting just to watch the mind and see everything it's doing and kind of the, the skillful parts and the crazy parts. So one of the things that amuses me about my mind... And I just found it very interesting just to see the conditioned interrelationship between thought and emotion. You know, because, because so often we get caught up in being identified with one or the, with the thought or with the emotion or both. But at one point I was just I was sitting and I was just watching my mind and a certain thought came and I can't even now remember exactly what it was, but I think it was about some difficult situation that had arisen. So the thought came, and immediately following the thought, it conditioned the arising of an emotion. And uh, now I don't remember exactly what the emotion was, but maybe annoyance or irritation or whatever, whatever it was about the situation. I thought, that's interesting. This is just a thought. You know, a thought is so insubstantial, so empty, so nothing. And yet the thought comes, and immediately it triggers the emotion. So what just happened? <laughs> it was such a striking, uh, striking experience to watch the conditioned nature of what arises, particularly with strong feelings. So then I just started playing. I, st- I started intentionally calling up these thoughts to trigger an emotion. <laughs> because I just wanted to see it happen again and again. <laughs> You know, and of course, the opposite is true. Sometimes emotions are there for whatever reason, and they trigger a whole train of thought. But when we see their conditioned nature, it helps us depersonalize them. You know, so it takes the I out oh, because of this, this arose. Because of this, this arose. And it was just, it was interesting and fun to watch the mind you know, with that level of specificity. Well, I think uh, the grasping... I think comes first. Grasping can take many forms. It can take clinging, you know, sort of the the clinging at something, but it also can be the process of identification with. So that's a slightly different mental quality than grasping. It's basically wrong view, you know, where we take something to be self. Um, The thing is, after, even after the view of self has been uprooted, which happens at the first stage of awakening of stream entry. So the view of self has been uprooted, but there's still lots of other defilements which, in which grasping is in, involved. Right? So I, th- I think that you know, the craving or the grasping is really the key, or the identification with. And just to clarify... The way you framed the question, you know, which comes first, the grasping or the self? It's just always to, to 
keep the understanding in one way or another that the self is not there in the first place. It's not something... It's not something that exists. Rather, there is a felt sense of self in those moments when we were identifying with something. So I think it's helpful to come back to the process by which we feel there's a self, but not to be misled into thinking that there actually is such a thing. Because then, then we really get uh, mired in wrong view. Did that make sense? If, if anything I say doesn't, just don't, don't hesitate to say so. So, I think in the course of practice, we just go through a lot of different perspectives. You know, and we'll have a lot of different experiences and perceptions of this mind and body as it moves through the process. So, sometimes it may very well be like that, where there's this sense. And in one way, it could be an indication or an expression um, to some degree of the understanding of selflessness, kind of some sense of the impersonality of it all. You know, and there's just this mind-body doing its thing. And so it could feel like that. Um, but I would be careful not to um, create the idea that this is how it should be. You know, because sometimes we get a particular perspective and it may feel insightful in a certain way. And then we make that the, uh, the goal of practice, to, to have it, our experience be like that. So I would be very careful of that and really trust the whole unfolding process. So sometimes you see it like this, sometimes it's like this. There'll be a lot of different ways. Um, one thing which... Just to mention, I mean, you're all, you know, experienced yogis, so I don't think you're so much falling into this trap, but I just want to reiterate, but I do this in most retreats, uh, and it's particularly for people learning the practice, but maybe a reminder for you, that in meditation jargon, we use a lot of watching language, So watch, notice, observe. So it can give rise to the sense of someone looking at whatever's happening. You know, and so there's a kind of separation of duality there. And what I felt just to counter that tendency is sometimes to change the language from watching language to feeling language. So this is particularly apparent in the walking, in walking practice or just walking around. There's a big difference between the sense of observing the movement and feeling the movement. Because observing it, it's as if it's from the outside and we're tracking it. Feeling it is from the inside. And it's much more effortless you know, take a step and you're just feeling it rather than taking a step you know, and trying to hold on to it in the observation. Do you see the difference? <laughs> not, a, not a rousing nod of ascent here. <laughs> anyway, at least I hope you, you got the idea and then you can play with it. But particularly in the walking, that's a, that's a very good place to just see if, to, to see if you notice the difference. Are you just feeling the movement? 
Or is there a sense of observing the movement? And, and when I say observe, it, for me that feeling is more like, even if I'm not looking at it with my eyes, it's the sense of being up here watching, rather than in the body feeling. Yeah. And as I said, you're probably doing this already, but I just wanted to highlight that. There, so so are you asking about occasional times of lying down or because of some medical situation needing to do it most of the time or Right, right. Falling asleep, but it would yeah, yeah. enhance my ability yeah, yeah. to settle. And what's your experience? Does it does it do that? Yes. Yes. Take, takes all the agitation yeah. or if there's pain yeah, yeah, yeah. Place, it, it, it eliminates that and it leaves me free. Yeah, yeah. That sounds fine to me. I mean really the, it, it's not about the position. It's about the mindfulness. And so that should be the measure of if you can be meditating in lying position and staying wakeful and mindful. So I, yeah, it seems fine to do. And you might, and maybe you already have, but maybe trying different lying positions of, uh, and how that is, whether lying on your side or lying on your back, or, of what works the best to keep you most clear and wakeful. But sometimes giving the body that kind of rest and relaxation can really be helpful. Just This is peripherally related. And it's just a little something I noticed. I don't know how many of you are in the habit of taking a nap after lunch. How many are you? How many do that? Okay, some some number. So I was I was a big after lunch napper, <laughs> you know, on retreat. It just <laughs> what I found though I, I found something interesting and had to do with this relaxation. That at a certain point, I would lie down after lunch. You know that moment when you're resting, and you can just feel the body let go, just before falling asleep. You know, there's that kind of, where everything relaxes. So what I noticed, even at that time when I felt I needed the sleep, actually I didn't. I needed the relaxation. And so I got into a habit at that time of as soon as I felt that moment of release, then I would get up rather than take the nap. And it was so interesting because... It wasn't out of any um, it wasn't out of guilt <laughs> or, or uh, it was just interesting to me to see, okay, what's actually needed here? And if sleep were needed, that would have been fine. But I found that it wasn't, at least for me then. So these are the kind of experiments we can make, you know, and just kind of pushing at the edges a little bit and really seeing. You know, as we get into different meditative habits, which serve us, which don't, are there ways of playing with them? I think this is really important because it's very, very easy to get into the habit of a routine. You know, we get really comfortable in that habit. 
And it can serve us because, you know, we, we, we establish a lot of good habits, but there are some which may not serve us like that. You know, and, and so sometimes just to be poking at the poking at the habits of our practice. You know, and maybe it might be sitting a little longer or walking a little longer or you know, not having the eighth cup of tea or whatever it is. It's just to see you know, what we do habitually and just to play with that. Rather, rather than just be carried along by the habit. With the four foundations, do you um, go situation by situation on which frame you focus on, um, or do you have a more of a script that you touch? Right. You know, also, with regard to that, different teachers will have different methods and systems. For me, I, I don't have a particular sequence, but I'm just sitting and being with whatever is arising, and different experiences just fall into one or another of the four foundations. But other, other teachers really have a, kind of a systematic way of going through them, um, and it's all good, you know. And so it really sees what what works best for you at a particular time. Yeah, lots of ways. So, many of you probably heard me uh, in these last quite few years, I've introduced kind of the beginning practice in a somewhat different way than I had been before, which had been really going to the breath and using that as the anchor and the primary object and then opening to other things. So, but in recent years, I've been using this phrase from, which is a line from the Satipatthana Sutta, there is a body. You know, uh, and Bhikkhu Inalio had kind of highlighted that phrase, and then I started experimenting with it. found it very useful. So beginning with just that, and even using that phrase as a kind of mental note, you know, where I would repeat the phrase, not every moment, but intermittently. You know, there is a body. And so that's just the, the sense or the awareness of the whole body. It's like the framework. And having that be the grounding element and staying open then to whatever arises within that frame. So there is a body and then within that one might feel the breath in different places will feel different sensations or hear sounds. But instead of the mind, instead of narrowing the mind onto those objects, in this particular way of practice, it's keeping the broader frame there is a body and simply letting these objects come and go within the frame. I've personally found that very helpful and I got a lot of feedback from yogis that it helped... Uh, Sometimes people can get a little too tight, narrowing the focus on the breath. Not everybody, but it's not uncommon. And this is just a way of making a wider frame that allows the breath just to be however it is, because one is not zeroing in on it. So that could be one way. So much is experimentation. It's just... Just playing and seeing what helps, what doesn't help. Regarding um, the second foundation of mindfulness, Tana, um, she'll be the one who pulled off on Friday. <clears throat> and I wasn't aware of the designation of uh, unworldly and worldly pleasures. <clears throat> and illustrating that distinction, she told the story of the Buddha. The 
description of his of his childhood when he was well into his practice, his austere practice. <clears throat> and um, so apparently he, had, he was sitting under a, a rose, rose apple, apple tree. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm not I'm not really an expert in the historical development, but my impression is that in the India of his time, you know, there was a lot of emphasis among the sadhus and yogis on the renunciation side and the self mortification side. So that was a that was a very predominant part of the Indian spiritual culture at that time. And so his big insight at that moment was Oh, there are certain pleasures that are not unskillful. You know, the unworldly pleasant feelings that are that are actually skillful and onward leading on the path. And we there are many examples of this that we have in our own lives. And certainly, you know, at those times when you're feeling the mind has settled into some level of concentration and the ease of that. Uh, so that's a good experience of where the practice can be very pleasant, but there's not a grasping there. You know, it's a function of the concentration. Um, of course, one does want to watch to see if we get attached to that or not, but that's another whole issue. The, the pleasant in the concentration itself is a skillful, is a wholesome state. But we can feel that same unworldly pleasant feeling in a lot of in a lot of our worldly interactions, so you know, in those moments when you're being generous, how do you feel? There's a good feeling, you know, or uh, being generous, being kind, following the precepts, restraining from something, you know, that we see as unskillful, and we restrain from that. Uh, so there's a good feeling that comes from that, and that pleasant feeling we could say, is an unworldly pleasant feeling. So I think we have a lot of both mundane experiences of it and meditative experiences of it. And likewise with the unworldly unpleasant, because we go through meditative stages where things are unpleasant, you know, whether it's unpleasant physical sensations or sometimes there's certain stages in practice where we're seeing the um, the difficult side of impermanence. You know, everything is just falling away, and there's no security, and there's uh, it's not a pleasant experience. But it's actually deepening meditation. It's a deepening part of the practice, and and at that time, it's unpleasantness without aversion, and so it's an unpleasant, unworldly feeling. Uh, So it's just interesting to know that. And this came about because somebody once asked, uh, I think they asked the Buddha directly, or it might have been one of the great nuns that they asked, I can't remember who the dialogue was with, of whether pleasant always conditions greed or unpleasant always conditions aversion. And so this was the point made that, no, not always. You know, and that there, there are these pleasant and unpleasant experiences that don't condition unskillful things. So it's just helpful to know that and then to recognize you know, one's own practice. 
Jesus, there is suffering. Now, that seems like a pretty absolutist proclamation, um, which uh, may be at the root level of experiencing. You see that connection, but um, otherwise, it just seems like. Yeah. I think, I think the problem there is uh, that the Buddha wasn't speaking English. You know, and so suffering as the translation for dukkha is limited. I mean, yes, sometimes it means suffering, but suffering does not cover. So, for example, when things change from being unpleasant to pleasant, we don't experience that as suffering, we experience that as relief. Yeah. But so we need to enlarge our understanding of what dukkha means. Yeah, and so if you understand dukkha as meaning unreliable, then we can see clearly its connection to impermanent. And whatever is impermanent is going to be unreliable. Uh, so that, I think that's a more inclusive way of understanding that. And in going from there, it seems like um, that comes up a lot in studying all of this translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a problem generally of translation. That, just as another example of this, which is which is a common source of confusion, is the English word desire. Because in English, that word can mean many different things and reflect many different mind states. But because desire is u- the usual translation uh, of tanha or craving, so we then people hear, well, what about the desire for enlightenment or the desire to be more compassionate? But that's a different mind state, even though we're using the same word. That's why when there's some confusion, you know, that things don't quite make sense in one translation, um, that would be a good opportunity just to do a little uh, exploration of the Pali. Of really, okay, well, what's the Pali word? And then, you know, speaking to someone who really is an expert in the language. Well, what's, what is the, what's the Pali word and the meaning and what are the connotations of it? So that can often help to you know, illuminate the meaning. I'm not quite getting the point about the striving. Okay. Okay. (laughs) It's a good thing to forget. (laughs) So, it's an interesting question also for me because uh, on the surface of things, I'm not particularly devotional type. You know, some people, that's just a very strong feeling within and it comes easily and you know, that expression of devotion. Uh, My mind tends much more to the investigative side of things than the devotional side. But that's just devotion on a certain level because I am completely devoted to the Dharma. You know, and there's no question in my being about that. So when I sit now, where I sit, uh, I have a big, there's this big, really big book that somebody gave me with this beautiful picture of the Buddha. 
on the cover. So it's just propped up against a bookcase. And so before I start sitting, I do the refuges. Uh, and when I'm doing, I take refuge in the Buddha. Okay, I'll just back up a little bit. I adjusted the formula for the refuges a little bit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in a way that would, would need his approval. <laughs> I just add a few things, and it helps me in the very question you're asking. So the way I take refuge is I take refuge in the Buddha and the awakened mind. I take refuge in the Dharma and the noble path. I take refuge in the Sangha, in the community of enlightened beings. And may my practice be for the welfare and benefit of all. So what that does for me, it gives a little more specificity to what I'm actually taking refuge in. I'm highlighting the aspect in each one. So when I say I take refuge in the Buddha and the awakened mind, and I'm kind of looking at this picture, it's almost like, of course this is a projection, but I'm imagining the Buddha's awakened mind. You know, you know, I just get a, whatever it is, an intuition or a glimpse or a, an idea of oh, yeah, the Buddha's mind that's completely free of any identification with self. This is completely open, you know, and fearless. So then it's easy. So then that feeling of devotion to the Buddha comes not not only or limited to the idea of him as a historical being, but to the nature of his mind. That's so inspiring. You know, right? So it's like that, that's that's how I cultivate that sense of devotion, even though it's not my uh, it's not my strongest temperamental quality. You follow? Yeah. Uh, so I would just find your own way. I mean, for me, that that really works. When I look at the Buddha and then think of the expansiveness of the mind, especially relative to my own. I can feel a lot of devotion. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good place to be. Uh, yeah. You know, in some way, we all kind of have our own projections about the Buddha. And, uh, but one way I like to think of it and relate it to my own practice is, and I think for all of us, we have a comfort zone in terms of experience that we are okay with. We can be with this much. And it's okay. We feel accepting of this. But then we get to the edge of our comfort zone. And it may have to do with physical discomfort. It may have to do with certain difficult emotions or some expectations about our practice. It's like we get to the edge of our comfort zone And often people get a little uh, agitated there or kind of struggle or pull back, you know, because we want to be more comfortable. But being at the edge of the comfort zone is exactly where we want to be. That is the edge of our practice. And so if we can recognize that, and that, okay, can I relax a little bit into whatever that experience is? You know, if it's pain, if it's physical pain, okay, can I just, can I just be with it? Or difficult emotion. Can I just be with it? And, you know, through our practice, our comfort zone gets a little bigger. And then we reach that edge. And it gets a little bigger and bigger. And so my imagination of the Buddha's mind is that there are no edges. There's no edges. And if there are no edges, there's no fear. And so I, my imagination... <laughs> of his mind is just that mind of complete openness without any boundary you know of what's okay and what's not okay uh, 
So this is just another way we explore our own relationship to the Buddha and what our idea of the Buddha is and what that means to us. I can, but I'm, I'm curious to know what what your experience of the delusion oh, it's is. A huge sense of self in ways that I hadn't experienced right. before. I mean, I've, I've made lives, and it's completely. <laughs> I mean, it'll all fall apart. Huh. Yes, yes. Okay, there's there's one very simple, and for me tremendously illuminating way of understanding delusion. And there are many, there are many, many uh, moments when you can experience this. And that is really watching that process of, so you're sitting and you're with the breath or the body, whatever you're aware of, and then the mind gets carried away in a thought. And then at a certain moment, you wake up from being lost in the thought. Right in that moment, generally what people will do is either jump back to the object of meditation, whether the breath or the body, or they may precede that with a little judgment about having been lost. Instead of either of those, I find it extremely interesting to highlight that moment of transition from having been lost to being awake. We're lost in the thought, lost, 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 and then all of a sudden, oh, thinking, what just happened? Right, Right in that moment. Being lost is delusion. We're not aware of what was going on. In the moment of waking up to the fact that we're thinking, we're already back in awareness. And if you highlight that moment, the contrast between delusion and wakefulness will be so vivid. And the next step then, really, and this this could change your whole practice, instead of getting down on ourselves from all the times that we're lost, why not take delight in all those moments of waking up? In every moment that you come out of a thought, oh, this, the mind is awake again. So delight in that awareness of awareness. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Because as many times as you get lost, that many times do you wake up. That's <laughs> an equal number of times. So why not highlight the delight of waking rather than judge oneself for having been lost. So it brings a lot of delight and interest to the practice because first we're seeing that the transition from one to the other and we get a very clear view of what each is. So another practice which I've done recently and I found super helpful And I first did this in walking, and not even in the walking meditation, but, but uh, you know, the slow, slow one, but when I would be walking at a more normal speed, but, you know, be, trying to be mindful. I started noticing the very quickly passing thoughts that come through the mind, thoughts that are not problematic, they're not, they're just light. Light little thoughts that pass through. Maybe it's a plan or a 
a comment or a memory. And I realize that because these thoughts are not problematic particularly, that I was really not paying attention to them. You know, just they would just come and go. Okay, so now I just want to back up from that for a moment. Do you know the experience of when you wake up in the morning after a night's sleep, and you wake up and then maybe sometimes you drop back into sleep and maybe a dream for a minute or two, and then maybe wake up again and then you're really awake. Well, I had been noticing that. And then I noticed when I started watching these quickly passing thoughts that it was exactly the same experience of falling back into the dream. You know, just a quick thought, but for the duration of that thought, until I started doing this exercise, I was not aware. I I was back in the dream of the thought. And it might have been 10 seconds or 20 seconds. And again, not dramatic, not problematic, but still asleep. And then I noticed that a lot of these thoughts, even though they were very light, in one way or another was self-referential. Oh, I want to go here, I want to go there, or that would be a nice vacation, or a memory that I had. It's one way or another. And so I, I, the phrase came to mind, I'm just dreaming myself into existence with all these quickly passing thoughts. I was unknowingly reinforcing some sense of self. So it became a very interesting practice for me and very illuminating. Because this is a practice we can carry throughout the day and throughout our lives outside of retreat if we get into the habit of just watching for these light, quick thoughts and seeing if we can maintain awareness in them and of them and seeing how often we don't. So it's also very humbling because we may think that, I'm pretty mindful, I've been practicing all these years, and not that I never get lost, but I'm pretty mindful. (laughs) But when we're watching for these quick thoughts passing, we see how many times in a day we drop into that delusion. And it can be quick, which is why we haven't particularly paid attention to it. So that could be another way but for me, the, the difference between being lost in a thought, however long or short, and being aware of a thinking is just the clearest view of delusion and wakefulness. It's, it's just so apparent. And I don't know what the right word is. It's a little uh, sobering to realize that most of the world is in delusion most of the time. You know, it's a, which is why we're in the state that we're in. You know? I mean, here we are devoted to mindfulness and wakefulness and awareness, and we see how often the mind slips into delusion. So people without any intention or practice to be awake or aware are just living in that. That's the norm. So for me, understanding this really inspired a lot of energy uh, to practice and be that attentive. And also, it's fun. (laughs) It is just to to be seeing our minds and everything they're doing. And the, the great blessing of you know, our connection to the Dharma. And that's why in the refuge, I take refuge in the Dharma, the noble path, that in the midst of all of this delusion in the world and the mind, there actually is a path to wakefulness. And that through some incredibly good karma and blessings and whatever, we are all on that path and we understand that path to some extent. So that's... That's a fantastic thing.
Okay, so this will be a good, good little conclusion <laughs> to the evening, because this is another practice which I've just started doing over these last few years, but it's really had a tremendous impact on my practice. So I think it was a couple of years ago, I was on a self-retreat, and there's a line in the suttas, which is frequent, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it, uh, where the statement is that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. You know? And sometimes that's in the suttas, and just hearing that, people get enlightened, and sometimes that line is express, is the expression of somebody's enlightenment experience. So it's, it has profound meaning. But I had read that, you know, for... 45 years of my practice, and it just seemed like an obvious statement of impermanence, and I never really gave it any more thought. Yeah, whatever has the nature to rise will also pass away. Things, everything changes. But then on this self-retreat, I was just sitting, and for whatever reason, right in the midst of a sitting, this line came to mind. And because I was sitting and my mind was fairly still, it's as if that line... Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Instead of being up here someplace, it's almost as if the meaning of it dropped into the very process that was unfolding. I don't know if you have a sense. It's like the meaning of it just became very vivid experientially in that moment because I was just in sitting and in that process of watching things come and go and come and go, just the flow of impermanence. And so on this moment-to-moment level, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, just became so vividly clear. And then my mind went to the conclusion of that. And this was all within like, you know, a minute or so. It It wasn't... It just came intuitively. It wasn't like I was you know, particularly proliferating in thought about it. But then, So I was in that process. Things are just flowing along. And, oh, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Therefore, there's nothing to want. And particularly on this meditative level, on this moment-to-moment level. Because whatever I want in the practice will also pass away. So understanding that, there's nothing to want. And in that moment, there's nothing to want. When that thought came, I could feel my mind drop back from the very common tendency we have of leaning into the next moment. We were with this in order for this. We were with the breath in order to deepen our concentration, or with the pain in order for it to morph into something else. So there's always that, not always, but often, there's this leaning. It's almost like an energetic, just... Do you ever sense what I mean? Just leaning into the next moment, (laughs) as if somehow the next moment will resolve everything this moment hasn't. But then when... With the state, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, I realized there's nothing to want because whatever it is that I'm leaning into will also just pass away. And in that moment, there's nothing to want. I could feel the mind drop back from the leaning. It really dropped back into, just for a few moments, into a deep not wanting anything. And this was, this was so... It was both very simple, but it was quite profound for me because it highlighted 
what our practice is actually about. That really what we're doing is practicing not wanting. The practice is not about, at its essence, gaining experience. So there's nothing to want because what we're practicing is not wanting. And in that moment, could really feel that is a taste of the third noble truth. You know, there's dukkha and the cause of dukkha, which is craving, and the end of dukkha, which is the end of craving, or the end of wanting. So even if it's just for a few moments, and I had this was the experience, could just taste the peace, the, the profound peace of the mind not wanting. It's a very unique It has a very unique flavor. It's unlike anything in the process that's arising and passing away. You know, and, and I'm not saying you know, these moments are great enlightenment experiences, but they're a taste. They're a taste of it. And you know, the Buddha's great enlightenment song that supposedly came to his mind, that the great famous house builder quote, or house builder now been seen, you will build no house again, house of self. And then the, the end of that verse is, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So he's saying so explicitly that this is, the, this is what we're practicing, the end of craving, the end of that wanting or leaning into. Previous to this, I had always put the third noble truth in the end of craving as some far-off goal, you know, and maybe in some lifetime I'll get there. But in this, I realized, no, this is something we can practice now in the moment. And as I say, even if it's only for a moment. So I've been using this little phrase frequently in my practice now. Either there's nothing to want, or just not wanting, or something that reminds me that that's what the practice is. It's not about getting. So there is a way to practice it in a very meaningful and profound way because it it really gives us a taste of that. And the more we have that taste, you know, in the practice, then hopefully at times we may remember it in a more worldly situation where desires are running amok. <laughs> and if we can remind ourselves, at least at time, oh, there's nothing to want. So I, if you're interested, you might play with that, because I, I found it extremely helpful because of this tendency in our practice to be leaning into the next moment, which is a kind of wanting. It's a kind of craving. It's craving for becoming. You know, become this, or become this, or become this. Nothing to want. It's amazingly simple, and as I say, for me, it really felt like the, there's something profound in that, because it reorients how we're practicing. You can play with it. So why don't we just sit for a moment and then we can do the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.